0: Well, as we turn to the Word of God, I would invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 33, Exodus chapter 33, for this message entitled, Behold your God, the Sovereign Savior, the Sovereign Savior. Our text for today is Exodus 33, verse 19, but we'll look at that verse in the context of the whole chapter, and just keep in mind as we walk through this, that this uh, also sets us up for next week's message, uh, which we'll call The Glorious Savior, out of uh, chapter 34, verses 7 to 8. But it's all really, chapter 33 and 34 really come together as one narrative. So this is, in a sense, part one, and then part two next week, but with different emphases. As you're turning there, let me make, take a moment just to give you a preview of what's coming up. Uh, As uh, we move forward in the life of our church, Uh, these two messages will take us to the end of September. And then the first two Sundays in October, we'll have a couple guest preachers. Uh, The first Sunday in October, our family will be in California for the ACBC conference. And then the following Sunday will be the installation service. And so uh, it's my plan, if the Lord wills, that starting October 15th, we will be starting a new uh, sequential expositional uh, series going through a book of the Bible. I've been thinking and talking with a number of people, as well as the elders, of course, as to what would be good for the life of our church and kind of coalescing along with my own desires and interests. And uh, all of those conversations seem to narrow down the options that I've been thinking through down to the Gospel of John. And so I'm uh, personally excited about that, and uh, I know that uh, the youth group is going through uh, the Gospel of John. I know that there's a ladies' Bible study that just started on the the Gospel of John. Uh, But uh, trust me, we're going to go a lot slower (laughs) And so for those of you who are currently studying it, uh, just know that that study that you're doing will only uh, make uh, the preaching series all that more helpful to you because you'll, you'll be caught up and you'll have a deeper understanding. I've been very encouraged by how many of you have told me how this current series has ministered to you in various ways and it certainly has ministered to my own soul in, in a variety of ways. And because it will likely take several years to get through the Gospel of John, uh, Pastor Leek took four years, so I have at least that long. Um, I'm, I don't know if it'll take me as long as uh, is it took him. Uh, but anyway, uh, my plan is to take breaks at various points and to come back to this series, uh, especially in the summer times. So uh, there, there's still eight, eight messages, eight passages in this series that I had hoped to get to. Uh, but I think it's best for us as a church to dive into a sequential exposition. Uh, and then we'll come back to various Old Testament passages uh, at various points. All right. So you can be looking forward to that. And and by God's grace in, in his providence, where we are is a perfect transition because Exodus 33, as we s- will see today, presents God as the sovereign savior. Exodus 34 presents God as the glorious savior. And in John chapter 1, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John presents Jesus Christ as he who is full of grace and truth, which is a direct reference to uh, Exodus chapter 34. So we'll go from one to the next and it'll be a perfect transition. All right. So that's what we can be looking forward to. And if you want, you can read ahead. All right. Exodus 33, if you're there. Uh, Let's start just by reading verses 18 and 19. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Would you pray with me? God, as we look at this text, it is in some ways so familiar to us. And yet as a response to Moses' desperate cry we see that it is your glory on display and so may it not be familiar Lord prepare us to see you in your glory these are things which many have struggled with your sovereignty. Help us to approach this text and your word with humble hearts to hear what you have revealed is true about yourself, and may that cause us to rise in worship. For the sake of Christ, amen. In this text, Moses asks God to reveal himself in all of his glory. And in this text, Yahweh responds by declaring himself as the sovereign Savior. And then in the next chapter, as the glorious Savior. So today and next week, we are studying the glory of God. This declaration by Yahweh presents to us a God, the God, who alone has free will. And he exercises that free will independently without any outside influence for the purpose of saving sinners. And it's in this that we see the brightest and most stunning refractions of the glory of God. The beauty and the glory of God is seen in creation to be sure, but it's most majestically put on display in the exercise of His sovereign will to save and redeem those who are under His holy and just wrath. That's the truth proclaimed in this text. If it's true that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, then let it be true of us, beloved that what comes into our minds when we think about God is that he is a sovereign savior and that he alone is worthy of honor and glory and power and praise now before we can narrow our focus to these two verses it will help us to get the context uh, in our minds last time a couple of weeks ago we studied Exodus chapter 15 which is the celebration song that Moses wrote, and Israel sang when the Lord defeated uh, the Egyptian army after having redeemed Israel out of Egypt. And between Exodus 15 and Exodus 33, Israel has made the, the few days journey down to Mount Sinai. The Lord has begun providing manna for them on a daily basis. Moses has spent 40 days up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments and many other laws pertaining to civil society and the worship of God. And it was at the end of that 40 days that the people grew impatient. They said, we don't know what's happened to this Moses. And so they compelled Aaron to make an idol for them, make a God for them that they could follow. So Aaron crafted that golden calf and the people worshipped that abomination And as they were engaged in that worship and idolatry at the bottom of the mountain, Yahweh and Moses who are at the top of the mountain. The Lord tells Moses what's going on, and Moses rushes down to put an end to that idolatry. But before he goes down, Moses intercedes for the people because their sin warrants the threat from God to completely destroy the people and start over with Moses. In fact, look back at chapter 32, verses 9 to 14. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And I will make of you a great nation. Verse 11, then Moses entreated the Lord as God and said, Oh, Yahweh, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak saying with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heavens and all this land which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Not that Yahweh had forgotten, but Moses there reminds the Lord about his promises. More than that, he argues that the glory of God is, on, is at stake. God, God, if you destroy Egypt, what's that going to say to the Egyptians? They're going to have the wrong idea of who you are and why you delivered your people. Well, having successfully accomplished his role as a prophet and a mediator between God and the people, the Lord relents. That phrase in the NAS changed his mind is one Hebrew word which we looked at when we studied Genesis six back in June, and, and the meaning of it depends on the context, and here it would be better translated as relent, which is Not to say that the eternal fixed decree of God somehow became unfixed and the Lord redirected and went another direction. Rather, in the unfolding of his plan, what he had revealed as a possibility was shown not to be his decreed will. Through the mediation of Moses, the Lord's eternal decree was upheld, though his revealed will seemed to change. And so Moses then heads down the mountain and deals with Aaron and the people in a way that looks severe. Thousands of them perish, but it was really quite restrained compared to what they deserved for their sin. So then Exodus, uh, excuse me, yeah, Exodus 33 opens up with Yahweh's instruction for the people to move on from Sinai. He's finished his business with Moses at that point. And so look at verses 1 to 6 of Exodus 33. Then the Lord's spoke to Moses, depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning, and none of them put on his garments or ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst? For one moment I would destroy you. Now therefore put off your ornaments from you, that I may know what I shall do with you. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Yahweh had shown Himself to be powerful and faithful to His people. And the people showed themselves to be complainers and idolaters. In His mercy, the Lord chose not to wipe them out, but rather to send someone else, one of His angels, one of His messengers, to lead them to the promised land. And so having given this instruction, you might almost expect the narrative to move forward with, okay, then the people got up and moved on. But that's not where... The narrative goes. Moses cannot accept the idea of the Lord not going with them. So he has some words for Yahweh. But before Moses records the exchange that he had with the Lord, he deems it necessary to explain to us why he felt so bold to speak to Yahweh the way that he did. Look at verses 7 to 11. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp a good distance from the camp, and he called it the Tent of Meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the Tent of Meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about, whenever Moses went out to the tent, that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise and worship each at, his, at the entrance of his tent. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. To say that the Lord spoke with Moses face to face is to say that uh, there was a level of freedom that Moses had to speak to the Lord. They spoke as friends. As it were. And that's exactly what we see in the dialogue of verses 12 to 23. Moses challenges God with the aim to get him to change his mind about not going with them and rather sending an angel. Moses' language is confrontational, not humble. It's really provocative, not submissive. And so, in response to the news that the Lord would not go with them, Moses says this look at verses 12 and 13. He says, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Moses complains here that as the one who's been entrusted to lead the people, God is not giving him all of the information. He's saying that God is ill-equipping him for the task that he's been entrusted with. And so he asks, let me know your ways so that I may know you. Like the rest of the nation, Moses had seen the miraculous works of the Lord. He had seen the, the power of God on display. But what he wants to know is not just the acts of the Lord, but the ways of the Lord. Which is to say, he wants to know what's, what's on God's mind. How does God think that then drives what he does? Or another way to put it is, he wants to know the heart of God. What are God's bi- values? What are God's priorities? What are God's purposes? He doesn't just want to see God act. He wants to know God personally. Notice how Yahweh responds in verse 14. And he said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Note note that in verses 12 to 13, Moses does not ask, Lord, I want you to go with us. Change your mind. Do Do something different than what you said. The Lord doesn't respond to Moses' request. He responds to kind of the practical Issue that he knows is on Moses' heart. So for the moment, he sidesteps Moses' question to know him and he responds to that unstated request. Now, I don't know if Moses didn't hear the Lord, not likely, or if he was just so amped up with what he wanted to express to the Lord that, that he just had to get it out, but he keeps trying to convince the Lord to go with them even though the Lord had just said that he would go with them. Look at verse 15. Then Moses said to him, "If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we I and your people may distinguish from all may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? He gives compelling reasons there as to why the Lord should go with them, namely that it's only in Yahweh going with them that anybody would recognize the uniqueness of the people and the special relationship that Yahweh had." with Moses. Otherwise, Moses says, we might as well just be like every other nation if you're not going to come with us. And so in verse 17, the Lord affirms what he had once said. I will also do this thing of which I have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Yahweh not only accepts Moses' appeal there, but he reiterates the, the reason that he that the reason that he does so is because of the favor or the grace that Moses has found in his sight. It's hard to put ourselves in Moses's shoes and what he's feeling at this moment, but you have to understand that Moses is talking to God and he knows that. And Moses had recently just heard the most devastating news of his life, that Yahweh was not going to go with them And so his soul was stirred and it was churning as he was engaging with God and trying to get God to change his mind. And all of a sudden he realizes, wait a minute, it worked. (laughs) I, I got what I wanted, at least in terms of God changed his mind from his perspective. But even though his soul stopped turning on that note, his emotions were still turning in the intensity of the moment. And so he cries out in verse 18, I pray you, show me your glory. He didn't get the answer to the earlier question that he asked to know the ways of the Lord. And so he puts it differently this time and more intensely. I pray you, show me your glory. Now, I pray you is a term of appeal. It really means please. But Moses is not saying that in order to be polite to the Lord. He's saying that because he's begging. He's pleading with God. He's desperate to know God more. In verse 13, where he used that phrase, he was asking to know the ways of Yahweh. Here, he intensifies his request and he says, I want to see you. I want to know you for who you truly are. I don't want just glimpses of you here or there. I don't want evidences of you. I want to see you. Now let me ask you this. Is that what you want? Is that what you desire? To see God? To know God? Do you want to know Him deeply and personally? Do you approach His Word with a deep longing to know your God? Psalm 42, verse 1 says, as the deer pants for the water book, so my soul pants for you, O Lord. Does your soul pant for God? Would that we all had such desperation for God. We are so easily satisfied by the little that we know of Him. We invest ourselves into learning and knowing all kinds of things in this world. And we struggle to even have the desire to grow in our knowledge of God. Sure, we might be eager to hear a sermon or go to a class and read a book. But once that's done, our souls have been fed and we're happy to go for days on the strength of that food and we don't feel that spiritual hunger pangs in our soul someone might say that the difference between us and Moses is that we actually have a lot more knowledge and revelation of God than he did. I mean, after all, Moses did not have any written revelation of God until he himself wrote the first five books. But you and I have the sufficient scriptures. We have the knowledge of Christ. We have the, the sufficient truth that God wants us to know in all the 66 books of the Bible. Well, it's a valid point, but it kind of misses the point. Because the difference between us and Moses is the difference of available revelation, not a difference of knowledge and experience. It's the same difference between a starving person in a war-torn country who has no access to food versus someone who's surrounded by a buffet and chooses not to eat. Having food available to you doesn't make you healthy and strong. It only benefits you if you eat it. And so it is that though we are incredibly blessed beyond imagination with an abundant spiritual buffet of truth at our fingertips, fingertips, we are often so distracted by the things of this world that we are spiritually starving and we don't even realize it. Or sometimes we are so full of pride because of what we know that we don't think we need to know anything else. We are sick with undigested knowledge of God that hasn't yet transformed our lives. Well, as we think about our church, I'm so grateful for the foundation that Pastor Leek set over many years. Uh, establishing a, a pattern and a legacy of faithful biblical teaching, not just from the pulpit, but throughout the ministries of the church where people can come and learn and grow in the knowledge of God. And it's such an incredible encouragement for us as pastors to know that so many of you are participating and taking advantage of those things, from growing disciples classes to small groups and all of the other studies and discipleship opportunities in the church. On top of that, I often hear of people uh, doing their own personal study or getting together in unofficial studies with others to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. That, that is a sign to us, that the Holy Spirit is at work among us, giving us a hunger for His Word and producing that growth in the knowledge of God in us. But there's still many who are missing out on the opportunity to grow in the Lord. Perhaps you know yourself to be not taking advantage of the discipleship opportunities available to you. Some of you know that you're wasting time with frivolous things or Pointless activities that take far too much of your time. And just to give you some, something to ponder, there are, there are legitimate reasons we understand why someone would not be able to participate in a growing disciples class or small group or other ministries. But let me encourage you just to consider this question for yourself. Do I have a strong desire for God? Do I hunger and thirst for righteousness, as Jesus said in Matthew 5.6? Do I long for the pure milk of the Word, as it's written in 1 Peter 2. 2. I would encourage you to go through the list of reasons that perhaps prevent you in your mind from taking advantage of what the Lord has given you as opportunities to grow in Him. And consider whether those reasons stand and are valid, and they may be, or whether they are needing to be reconsidered. But we ought to be like Moses who cried out, show me your glory. When you open the Bible, as often as you read it, that's a great way to start your Bible reading. Lord, show me your glory. Help me to see you in this text, whatever it is you're reading. We'll look at verse 19 to see Yahweh's response. He said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. The Lord responds to the cry of Moses by saying that he would do three things. First, he would make his goodness pass before him, which is to say he would reveal to Moses some of his manifest glory. Second, he would proclaim the name of Yahweh, which is to say he would reveal his essential nature to Moses. And third, he declares his sovereignty in choosing to whom he extends grace. Those first two we'll study next week when we look at the latter part of the chapter and into chapter 34. Our attention then turns to this third response. Where Yahweh declares his sovereignty over mankind. Look at it again, the second half of verse 19. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. To organize our thoughts, we're going to consider this passage under four headings. First, the character of sovereign salvation the character of sovereign salvation. Second, the certainty of sovereign salvation. Next, the selectivity of sovereign salvation. And then finally, the sign of sovereign salvation. Character, certainty, selectivity, and sign of sovereign salvation. Let's begin with the character of sovereign salvation. As some of you see in your Bibles, the two qualities translated in the NAS as grace and compassion are translated as either grace and mercy, or in other Bibles, mercy and compassion. This difference among translations reveals to us, or hints to us, that there's a lot of overlap between these terms, such that mercy can be a replacement or a synonym for either grace or compassion. But we can make distinctions between these terms. The word grace here is hanan, which is the verb of the noun form chain, which is translated as favor in verses 12 to 17 several times. On the, on the surface, it simply means to extend favor uh, by doing good to another person, whether it's one person to another person or whether it's God to mankind. And it's often used in the context of suffering and difficult when somebody's in need. For example, after Bathsheba gave birth to her son with David, that the Lord said would die as a judgment because of David's sin, David fasted and prayed to the Lord because he said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. He was seeking favor from the Lord in a turn of events. Psalm one does doesn't tell us what the circumstances were, but there David prays, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me of my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. David uh, appeals to God on the basis of past relief that he's experienced from God. And he says, now, now, God, please be gracious to me. Have favor on me. Do good to me. Psalm 6-2, David prays, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me. O oh Lord, for my bones are dismayed. He's asking for physical strength and restoration from the Lord. And then all throughout the psalm, Psalms, we find the songwriters pleading for God to be gracious to them in the various aspects of their distress. But grace and favor can also be extended at other times as well. The Levitical blessing that we often hear says, in part, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. So whether in seasons of intense trial or at any time, this blessing prays for God's favor, for God's goodness, for God's blessing to be upon its recipients. In a fallen world where the curse of sin has pervasively affected every area of life in varying measure, we are always in constant need of God's favor from the ravages of sin that threaten to overtake us. There isn't a nanosecond of any of our lives, where we are not in need of God's grace. God's grace is what prevents us from being as sinful as we could be. God's grace is what prevents other people from being as sinful as they could be. And His grace is what prevents the created order from being as corrupt as it could be. Though we are made in God's image and though creation still reflects the glory of God, nothing is as it ought to be, but God's grace is what prevents all of creation from sinking into the depths of corruption and depravity as it did before the flood. Though there are many times when God gives creation and mankind over to their sin without restraint, there are yet many more times when he graciously holds back the progress of sin in this world. So you could say that grace is on the one hand uh, the active restraint of sin by God and on the other hand it's the it's the active granting of blessing to sinners who deserve God's wrath. It's the active restraint of sin by God and it's the active granting of blessing to sinners who deserve his wrath. That's Grace, salvation, rescue from the wrath of God is gracious. The other term that is translated compassion here is richam, the noun form of which is the word for womb. It speaks of that tender part of the woman's body which houses a, a growing child. And it's metaphorically used as a place where love and affection and compassion grow. Isaiah chapter 49 verse 15 kind of brings the literal and the metaphor together. And it says, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Meaning even a woman might forget, but I, Yahweh says, I will not forget you. There are fewer stronger, strong emotional connections than between a woman and her nursing child. But here the Lord says that his compassion is even stronger than that. Or consider Psalm 103 verse 13 that says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Fathers too have a deep connection with, and, and love for their children. And that's reflective of God's love and compassion for his people. So this term highlights the inner response of God to the plight of sinners. The Lord doesn't merely act in extending grace. Rather, he moves out of the compassion of his heart. Looking to the future plans that the Lord has for Israel, Isaiah chapter 14 says, when the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their land, then strangers will join them and attach themselves To the house of Jacob. In other words, after centuries of rebellion on the part of Israel, after centuries of rejection on the part of God, after they have experienced, the people have experienced all of the suffering and the hardship as a result of God's rejection, at the right time, God will look on his people and his heart will be warmed toward them in compassion and he will draw near to them and fulfill his promises. The Lord has compassion for his people. On a more personal level, Isaiah 55, verse 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So when a sinner turns to the Lord in humility, he won't find a a skeptical, antagonistic God who is just as likely to condemn as he is to save. No, they will find that Yahweh is warm kind, merciful, gentle, compassionate, and forgiving. This is the character of salvation. It is gracious and it is compassionate. God is gracious and compassionate. If you study those attributes in Scripture, you won't find that those are muted attributes of God. No, These are featured, emphasized, repeated, especially in the prophets where there's so much talk of the judgment of God. God wants his people to know that yes, though they deserve judgment and they will receive judgment at the same time, it will be measured by grace and compassion. In fact, at the height of God's judgment of Israel, when Jerusalem was destroyed, Jeremiah writes this about the heart of God in Lamentations 3, 31 and 32, for the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. When you hear that God is gracious and compassionate, maybe you find it hard to believe. Maybe you've experienced or seen so much pain and wickedness and suffering in the world that you wonder, how could God be gracious and compassionate in light of everything that I've seen? Or experienced it's the same question as if God is so loving how could he allow such bad things to happen or in thinking about salvation we might ask why does God save some people and not others is that really gracious and compassionate why doesn't God save my spouse why doesn't God save my child or other relative Maybe you could think of someone in your circle of relationships who is surrounded by believers, and yet for some reason they still remain in their sin and refuse to believe in Christ. How is that gracious and compassionate of God? Or, or perhaps you're the only person in your family who believes in Christ and tries, you might, as many times as you've as you proclaimed the gospel, no one else is accepting Christ. Or perhaps you're in a work environment where you're the only one who believes in Christ, or at least among the few. Or you're going to a school where it seems like everybody is a pagan, and you're the only one who worships Christ. What explains explains the extending of grace and compassion, or the withholding of grace and compassion? What explains the, the presence or the absence of God's compassion? That's what we find in our next two headings. We've seen the character of sovereign salvation. Next consider the certainty of sovereign salvation. Look at, again, at Exodus 33:19. He says, "I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion." This simple statement expresses the absolute and unalterable sovereignty of God. And it guarantees the salvation of his people. Notice how he says there, I will be gracious. And he says, I will show compassion. He doesn't say, I might be. He says, I will be. He doesn't say, I'll consider showing. No, I will show. He doesn't say all things being equal, if circumstances are right, if things turn out a certain way, I will be. No, he says, I will be gracious and I will show compassion. As Doug reminded us earlier, one of the things we can be certain of is that when God has determined to do something, He will do it. The prophet Balak was hired to curse Israel as they were making their way through Moab, but the Lord subverted that plan and in blessing Israel, Balak said this in Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? The Lord himself said in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8-11, to remember this, And be assured, recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. And beloved, God has said, I will be gracious and I will show compassion. There is no stopping him. No one can thwart God once he has determined to be compassionate and gracious on you or anyone else. He will be gracious. He will show compassion. He he will not change his mind. He will not back out. He will not be half hearted. All of the the presence and the power of God will be called together to pour out grace and compassion. This is the certainty of sovereign salvation. Next, consider the selectivity of sovereign salvation. Uh, Look at the text again and take careful note how he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. God is sovereign not only in the certainty of His will, but also in the selectivity of His will. He chooses whom He chooses. The criteria God uses to select who will receive His grace and compassion is encased in the secret mind of God. He determines to whom He, be, to whom he will be gracious solely on the basis of His internal Will It does not depend on you. It does not depend on me. It does not depend on anyone. There is nothing that we can do to commend ourselves to God, somehow make ourselves more attractive to Him. He's not swayed by our circumstances or our promises or our resumes. Now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, "...for for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble." But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man can boast before God. This is... This passage doesn't give us a list of qualifications or a list of disqualifications for salvation. Rather, it is to say that there are no qualifications that we can put forth and sway God to save us. God chooses whom he chooses of his own free will, uninfluenced, undeterred by anything in a person. Now this passage Exodus 33:19 is only quoted once in the New Testament, in Romans 9. In fact, turn there with me. We'll, we'll look at Romans 9 more extensively here. In the first part of Romans 9, Paul laments the fact that the nation of Israel at that time was rejected by God. And as in verse 6, he argues that this is not a failure of God's promises. It's rather a recognition that there have been many descendants from Abraham who were not part of God's chosen people. And as we'll see as we walk through this, Paul quotes Genesis, Exodus thirty-three nineteen as a response to those who question God's right to, sa- to choose who he will save and who he won't save. In verse 7, Ishmael was rejected and Isaac was chosen. In verses 12 and 13, of Isaac's sons, Esau was rejected and Jacob was chosen. Why? Look at verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of any works, but because of him who calls. In response to what seems like arbitrary, unjust decisions on the part of man, or excuse me, on the part of God, sinful man cries out injustice. In verse 14. But Paul says there may it never be. And then in verse 15, he quotes Exodus thirty three nineteen. Look at it. He says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, the reason there is no injustice in the, in the choice of God is because the choice is centered in the will of God and everything that God does is just by definition. And because the choice is centered on God, he says in verse 16, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Again, there's no injustice because God's choice is not dependent on what you or I do. It's not dependent or determined by human will or effort. No one gets grace based on what they've done or who they are. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, Having said that, Scripture does give us one reason which sometimes God expressly chooses whom He chooses and hardens whom He hardens. Look at verse 17 and 18, to see that sometimes it's to put His glory on display. Verse 17, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate My power in you, and that My name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then He has mercy on whom He desires, and He hardens whom He desires. So sometimes the Lord chooses to harden some in order to display His power and His glory over kings and nations. Then Paul goes on to affirm then that God has the right to choose some through whom he will display the glory of his wrath and some through whom he will display the glory of his mercy. Look at verses 19 to 24. You will say to to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he also called, not from the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles." Whether they admit it or not, sometimes people struggle with God's sovereign choice is because they truly believe that sinners deserve something less than the wrath of God. And so some declare that it's simply not fair, or it's not right, or it's not just that God would choose to save some for no other reason than that he chooses to. But what they miss is precisely what Paul argues here, and that is that the potter, God has every right to do whatever he wishes with his creation. And anyone who receives anything less than wrath is a recipient of grace beyond measure. The late R.C. Sproul put it well when he said, Some receive justice. Some receive grace. No one receives injustice. And the truth is, even those who receive justice in eternity have received an extraordinary amount of grace in this life, which only adds to their condemnation because that grace has not moved them away from their hostility against God. Well, Exodus 33, 19 quoted here in Romans 9, 15 declares to us the character of sovereign salvation, the certainty of sovereign salvation, and the selectivity of sovereign salvation. Again, he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and i will have compassion on whom i will have compassion we turn our attention then to the sign of sovereign salvation the sign you can be in either exodus 33:19 or you can stay in romans 9:15 it's the same text this sovereign choice on the part of god is part of God's decree made in eternity past. Ephesians 1.4 says He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. The, the decree of God is the determined will of God established before time began for what would take place from the beginning to the end of time. And that will of God, that decree, is only accessible to us to the degree to which God has revealed it on the pages of Scripture. And one of the elements of his decree which he has not revealed to us is whom he has chosen to be gracious to and to to whom he has chosen whom he has chosen to, to harden. There's only one way to know if you've been chosen. What is the sign of sovereign salvation? What is the sign that you or any one else has been chosen? The sign is this. That God has been gracious and compassionate such that a person is made spiritually alive and they can see the ugliness of their sin. And they see the glory of Christ and they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, placing their trust in Him for the forgiveness of their sin. Paul wrote in the second letter to the Thessalonians, but, but we should always give thanks to God for you, b- beloved brethren by the Lord, because God has chosen you From the beginning for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit, and faith in the truth. This is to say that they were chosen by God, and their faith in the truth and the sanctification by the Spirit was the demonstration that God had chosen them. Paul begins his letter to Titus with these words, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God, and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. In other words, the very purpose for Paul's apostleship is to preach the gospel so that those who are chosen by God can come to faith and the knowledge of the truth. But of course, Paul and nobody else knows who those chosen are, so he and we should preach the gospel to everyone, and the Lord will draw those to himself whom he has chosen. You know, I hear people say sometimes, oh, I'm pretty sure you know, my friend or whoever isn't chosen. Because they're so resistant to the gospel. They're so hostile to Christ. Well, that's a misunderstanding of this doctrine. Being chosen by God doesn't mean that someone will respond to the gospel the first time they hear it or the 10th time. If a person is chosen by God, it means that they will not be saved until the very moment that God has determined to extend his grace and compassion on them. And as long as those who reject Christ still have life and breath in them, there is always the possibility that they may be saved. So we keep praying and we keep preaching the gospel. Now on the flip side, you can have confidence that you are chosen by God and saved because salvation is not based on your efforts, but on the finished work of Christ, His perfect life, His substitutionary death, and His glorious resurrection. As long as you and I are trusting in Christ, not ourselves, but in His work, which alone justifies us before a holy God, we can have confidence that our sins are forgiven, we're reconciled to God, and we're destined to an eternity with Him. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ means that there is spiritual life in you. And to have spiritual life means that you've been made alive. And the fact that you've been made alive means that God has extended His grace and His compassion on you. And for God to extend His grace and compassion on you means that He chose you before time began. It's a wonder of wonders that the infinite, eternal, holy God can hold in His mind all at once the billions upon billions of names and faces of people that He would create And in in the mystery of his will, in seeing you, if you've trusted in Christ, he chose you before time began. And after creation, in time and space, according to God's perfect will, the gospel came to you. And he extended his compassion and his grace. He gave you life, and you saw with new eyes the glory of the gospel in the face of Christ, and you believed on him. John 1 verses 12 to 13 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When Jesus says in John 3 that you must be born again, What he means is that God must give you life. Which is why in John 6, Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. So the new birth produced by the Holy Spirit is an act of grace. Listen to these familiar words and hear them fresh. Ephesians 2, 4-9 But God, being rich in mercy, Because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. So the one who is born again has been made alive and experience, that person has experienced the fulfillment of the promise of God when he declared, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show Compassion. The character of sovereign salvation is that it is gracious and compassionate. The certainty of sovereign salvation is that it is guaranteed for those whom God has chosen. The selectivity of sovereign salvation is that it is determined by God and no one else. And the sign of sovereign salvation is that grace and compassion have been poured out on you and you have come to Christ because you've been given spiritual life. Oh, Bible Church, behold your God, the sovereign Savior. Let's pray. It's truths like these, O oh Lord, that will require eternity for us to praise and worship you. We were destined for eternity in hell, a lake of fire, to experience justly torment day and night, forever and ever. But in your sovereignty, you chose to save some, to extend your grace and compassion that we might see you and know you. So like Moses, we would have an experience of who you are. Lord, cause this in our lives to move us to worship you, to hate sin, to leave the world behind and to follow after Christ, who is our Savior. If there's anyone here, Lord, who you have not awakened, whom you have not given new life, Lord, we plead with you that you would do that. Lord, if there's anyone here who is asking you to pour out your grace and compassion on them, hear their prayer, give them spiritual life, new eyes to see and new ears to hear, desire to, to know you and live for you. And Lord, may we hear in the days to come of how you are saving sinners so that we may give you glory for the sake of Christ. Amen.